Hello and welcome to the third episode of our Secrets and Sins podcast. My name is Jennifer Pru, and today we're going to talk about deformity in Gothic literature. Now, before we talk about deformity, I should define it. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines deformity as the state of being distorted or unshapely in form, or an imperfection or blemish, such as a physical blemish or distortion, or a moral or aesthetic flaw or defect. Now, the definition that works best for us here is the first one, the state of being distorted or unshapely in form. Deformity and deformed characters have had a place in literature from very early on, from Beowulf to Shakespeare to Steinbeck, and deformed characters play an important role. In Gothic literature in particular, characters with deformities make a big appearance. The reason for this can be tied back to the idea of the grotesque. The grotesque, a major theme in Gothic literature, focuses on the human body, specifically in the ways it can be distorted, in ways that evoke both empathy and disgust. Naturally, deformities are a way the body can be distorted, and so fit in with uh, the Gothic obsession with the grotesque. Now, there's a multitude of examples of characters with deformities in the Gothic canon, but today we're going to focus on three novels in particular. Frankenstein, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Each of these novels approaches the idea of deformity differently and to varying effects, and by comparing and contrasting these, I think we'll be able to get a really good idea of the Gothic opinion of deformity. In Robert Louis Stevenson's 1886 novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the appearance of deformity takes the place of the character of Mr. Hyde. In The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Henry Jekyll, one of the main characters, is a renowned doctor, highly thought of by his peers, with every guarantee of an honorable and distinguished future. He has a dark side, however, vices and pleasures that conflict with his otherwise perfect and morally upright life. Stevenson writes, Hence it is that I concealed my pleasures, and when I reached years of reflection and began to look round me and take stock of my progress and position in the world, I stood already committed to a profound duplicity of me. Many a man would have even blazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of, but from the high views that I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. So, Dr. Jekyll has two sides to him. One good, the appearance of the successful doctor, and one bad, the the vices and the pleasures that he gives into but tries to hide. And he realizes this, and eventually comes to the knowledge that morally man has two sides to him, one good and one bad. And Jekyll deduces that man can actually separate himself into solely the evil side, or solely the good side. And Jekyll does manage this through the creation of a mysterious potion. And when he drinks it, the potion transforms him as it physically like transforms his body transforms his mind into his other, the morally bad side of him, Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde, the deformed character in this piece, is described as being pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness, and he spoke with a husky, whispering, and somewhat broken voice. 
All these were points against him, but not all of these could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him. There must be something else, said the perplexed gentleman. There is something more, if I could find a name for it. God bless me, the man seems hardly human. Something troglodytic, shall we say. So, not only is Hyde clearly defined as being deformed, Stevenson literally uses the word deformity to describe him. He is also clearly defined as being evil, and his transformation into deformity a direct result of his evilness. Also worth noting that he is seen as less than human. The character of Mr. Utterson, who is the character that is trying to uncover the mystery behind who Mr. Hyde is, thinks he seems, quote, hardly human. Stevenson also writes of Hyde, evil besides had left on that body an imprint of deformity and decay, which is clearly saying that his deformity is directly a consequence of his evilness. And Jekyll's transformed body, Hyde, was evil and uncaring and selfish and acted out all of the bad things that Jekyll felt he couldn't do otherwise. Um, And initially, Jekyll controlled the transformations with the serum that he made, but eventually, after however long of transforming into Mr. Hyde to, like, let off some steam, not give in to his vices as Jekyll, instead to give in to them as Hyde, but this begins to change when he involuntarily becomes Hyde in his sleep without drinking the potion. And eventually, Jekyll runs out of the serum and is unable to successfully recreate it and ends up stuck as Mr. Hyde. And what began as an escape for Jekyll ends really badly for him as he loses control. Mr. Hyde, at this point, has murdered someone and, hunted by police, Jekyll decides to write a full confessional in the form of a letter and then take his life. So the book ends with the line, Here then, as I lay down the pen and proceed to seal up my confession, I bring the life of that unhappy Henry Jekyll to an end. This novel very clearly defines deformity as evil, because the evil character in this is deformed directly as a consequence of his evilness. Um... This is a pretty harmful trope, not just in gothic literature, in literature and in media in general. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. For right now, we're going to switch topics and talk about H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Now, when we talk about H.P. Lovecraft, I always feel the need to first give a caveat that H.P. Lovecraft was a pretty terrible dude, and he was super racist, and that is undeniable. A lot of academics and fans of Lovecraft's work are willing to excuse his racism and xenophobia as a product of his time, or otherwise dismiss it um, in an attempt to separate the work from the man, the art from the artist. But Lovecraft's personal biases show up in his work constantly as themes and mainly as villains, as in the people he is scared of, uh, people of other cultures and races, show up as villains, or otherwise there are villains who represent them. 
in his novels. And that is what happens here um, in The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Now, why do we talk about this dude's writing if he uh, was such a terrible dude? Um, he was a great writer. His, his writing is unique, and he created the entire genre of, of cosmic horror and had a, had a great effect on both 1900s gothic literature and on the horror genre. Um, so, and also... The story is a great example of deformity in gothic literature, so I feel that it is necessary to talk about. Now, the characters with deformities in this novel are the people of the fictional town of Innsmouth. Set, as Lovecraft stories pretty much always are, in New England, Innsmouth is a decrepit fishing town of Massachusetts that we are first introduced to as Lovecraft explains the destruction of the town and the decimation of the people therein by the U.S. government. The story itself then begins after a description of the actions of the U.S. government, and the story really serves as an explanation and a justification for the destruction of Innsmouth and his people. Now, where does deformity come into play in this story? In the people of Innsmouth, the people who, at the very beginning of the novel, we are told, have been pretty much destroyed, who have otherwise been arrested or put into what Lovecraft refers to as concentration camps. And the justification for this is largely based on their appearance alone. The people of Innsmouth, described as having queer, narrow heads with flat noses and bulgy, starry eyes that never seem to shut, and skin that isn't quite right, rough and scabby, and the size of their neck are all shriveled or creased up. In general, they're described as looking fish-like or amphibian-like, and have a shambling gait. And, as is often the case with Lovecraftian characters, their appearance instills revulsion and horror in the other characters. They are said to be ugly enough that when a public outcry was raised over the government's treatment of these people, and concerned citizens were shown the people of Innsmouth, they almost immediately stopped questioning the harsh treatment. The ugliness of the people of Innsmouth was enough to justify the decimation of their town. Lovecraft writes this as if to say that the ugliness of these people represented such an evilness that they ought to be wiped from the earth. As in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the shadow over Innsmouth plays into the idea that beauty equals goodness, and deformity symbolizes moral decrepitude. This, in and of itself, is a harmful trope, and as I said, we'll go into that a little bit later. But Lovecraft's lesson of ugly equals evil doesn't just end there. Because the shadow over Innsmouth also plays with Lovecraft's fear of other people and cultures. Not only was Lovecraft a well-documented racist and xenophobe, he was obsessed with the idea of racial purity. Lovecraft believed that the mixing of the races, or miscegenation, should never happen. It was really bad to him. In a letter to a friend, he wrote, To be a member of a pure-blooded race ought to be the greatest achievement in life. This story is not simply about a town of ugly people. The shadow over Innsmouth is an allegory for miscegenation. The shadow that hangs over Innsmouth is the tainted blood of its inhabitants. But instead of mixing with humans of other races, the people of Innsmouth mixed with the Deep Ones, a race of powerful, intelligent, amphibious humanoids that live in the ocean off the coast of Innsmouth. The subsequent deformation and eventual destruction of the people was punishment for their miscegenation. 
this is where the shadow over in spout differs greatly from dr jekyll mr hyde and other uh gothic novels that deal with deformity while they both quite blatantly paint deformity in a negative light dr jekyll and mr hyde lacks the racist understory of lovecraft's writing this is why i think it's very important to acknowledge lovecraft's biases and faults when we talk about his writing and why the art in this case cannot be separated from the artist now why is deformity such a harmful trope in this case that is because both in the case of the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde and the shadow over innsmouth deformity is directly linked to evilness the evil characters in both of the novels are deformed and are deformed because of bad things that they did hyde is deformed by the potion because of his evilness the people in Innsmouth are deformed because of an evil thing that they did or a thing that they did that lovecraft viewed as evil now I think it's very important to examine and critique the portrayal of deformity in literature. And Gothic literature is, is a good outlet for that because deformity is quite common, whether it's the novels I've talked about so far, or The Phantom of the Opera, or The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Deformity is very much a trope. But so is the idea that beauty equals goodness. And this is in no way a novel idea or an idea that sprang up just in the time of Gothic literature. And the demonization of people with deformities isn't new either. Ancient Greek philosophers played into the idea of both. Socrates believed that beauty and moral goodness were congruent. And Aristotle specifically touched on the idea of deformity, writing that as to the exposure and rearing of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. People with deformities have been cast as villains in the literary canon for nearly as long. From Beowulf to Shakespeare, it is a trope rampant in literature. And it is directly harmful to real people. And that is, that is the why. That is the why I'm talking about uh, deformity in literature today. That is why it's an important topic to talk about. Because... It hurts real people. By the constant association of beauty with goodness and deformity with evil, an inescapable stigma has been created for people with real facial deformities. Because there is no real, although the science of physiognomy would have you believe differently, there's no real correlation between beauty and goodness. And there never has been. There is a correlation between art perceival of another person as good based on their um, beauty, based on how we how attractive we view them. The halo effect is real. But there's no moral backing to it. And current media continues to perpetrate this harmful trope. Think about movies that you have seen that have a villain with a facial deformity such as a scar or a burn mark. Just off the top of my head, I can name a bunch. And not just random movies. Ones that are, are incredibly popular. What is viewed as some of the most important movies. From Scar in The Lion King to Darth Vader in Star Wars to Freddy Krueger. Or the villain in the first Wonder Woman movie. Uh, or the villain in no less than seven of the Bond films including the one not yet released, No Time to Die, which has two villains with facial deformities. 
This portrayal of people with deformities as villains, and solely as villains, is actively harmful to real people. A study conducted by the charity Changing Faces found that 70% of people with a visible difference experience negative behaviors from others, such as harassment or judgment, and 28% of people with a visible difference or deformity experienced a hate crime because of it. So this portrayal as of, of villains as evil through the portrayal of only villains as deformed literally causes hate crimes to be committed against people with deformities. Changing Faces, a UK-based charity, is working to fight the stigma and provide support for people with facial deformities. And they have started this campaign titled, I Am Not Your Villain, which is working to end the trope of villains with facial deformities. Not only does this trope contribute to the stigma facing people with facial deformities, according to the chief executive of Changing Faces, children don't tend to make this association, the association of deformity with villainy, until they are exposed to films that influence their attitudes towards disfigurement in a profoundly negative way. Now, are any of the films I mentioned kids' films? Any Disney films that have villains with disfigurement? Lion King's kind of one of the most popular Disney films ever. And Scar is even named Scar. Given the harm that this trope provides, it's changing faces belief that it should be stopped, that movies should no longer be made that fall into this trope of villains with facial deformities. And I am inclined to believe that that is true. This trope harms real people, so why do we keep playing into it? At the end of the day, coding your villains as ugly or different equals evil and beautiful equals good is lazy writing. If your villains need to be disfigured in order for your audience to understand that they're a villain, in order for your audience to sympathize with your heroes, they aren't written very well. And if your audience can understand that they're a villain without their deformity, then there's no reason to include it and contribute to a harmful trope. Now, finally, I want to talk about Frankenstein and why it is a much better example of the appearance of deformity in Gothic literature. In Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein, deformity takes the shape of Frankenstein's monster, the man-like creature that Victor Frankenstein creates. I'll refer to it here as the creature. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time going into detail about Frankenstein. We did spend um, an entire episode of our podcast focusing on the novel and its subsequent adaptations, but I'd be remiss to try to talk about deformity in Gothic literature, or really talk about Gothic literature, without at least mentioning Frankenstein. It was an early foundational Gothic work, and extremely important, and influenced many works after it, but it also approaches the idea of deformity in a different way and casts deformity in a much more positive light than the other novels I've talked about so far. Now, if you've read Frankenstein or or are familiar with any of its uh, adaptations, you might think that that's not true. It doesn't cast deformity in a positive light. And it is true that if, if you approach the novel with the idea that the creature is the villain of the story, the creature's the deformity, then lends the idea uh, uh, that 
beauty equals goodness, deformity equals evilness, and plays into the very harmful trope. But I don't think that this is a correct interpretation of Frankenstein, despite the fact that Shelley was writing this in the age when people were obsessed with beauty, in an age in which physiognomy, uh, this pseudoscience of gauging a person's character based on physical appearance and facial features, is gaining significant traction. And the idea of beauty equals goodness was a commonly held belief of that time. Shelley's husband Percy declared in his works that God valued beauty above all else. And Mary Shelley herself wrote in her travel journals describing people she deemed as ugly, as monstrous, and offensive to her eyes. And she wrote that next to the consciousness of right and honor, God has shown he loves best beauty. Given this context and the propensity for modern readers to view the creature as the villain, somewhat, perhaps based on the adaptations modern audiences are more familiar with. Um, a common interpretation of Frankenstein is that it plays into the gothic trope of beauty equals goodness and deformity and ugliness equals evil. But I don't think that this is a correct interpretation, largely because of one thing. In Frankenstein, the creature is not the villain. He is the innocent. He is Frankenstein's, Victor Frankenstein's, abandoned child. And if Victor and other people in the novel had simply embraced the creature and not immediately judged him solely based on his appearance, the creature would not have been evil. He would not have killed anyone. If he had been accepted, the novel would not have ended badly. It is only when Victor and others dismiss the creature, make the judgment that beauty equals goodness and the monster is ugly so he must be terrible, that the creature lashes out. Um that the creature falls into the stereotypical gothic monster role of ugly both inside and out. If Victor and the other people had simply put aside their biases and embraced the idea that someone can be deformed or can be ugly and still be good, still have the potential of, of anyone else, that it would have ended happily. So really, this novel is... A lesson in treating other people better. It is a lesson in not judging people based on their looks. And that is why this novel puts the idea of deformity in a much better light. And it, it doesn't play into the harmful trope of villains are deformed because deformity is a sign of evilness. No. This, if people read Frankenstein and got that lesson and listen to it, the stigma and, and the, the, the hate that people with facial deformities face would be less. That's why I think Frankenstein's a great novel and definitely um, much has a much better approach to this than uh, The Shadow Over In's Mouth and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So we've gone over all three novels and talked about the way that they approach deformity and talked about the real world consequences of that. And really, the lesson here is the lesson that Frankenstein teaches us. Don't judge people based on their looks. Beauty does not equal goodness. Deformity does not equal badness. Beauty does not equal goodness. And deformity is not a signal of anything bad other than 
genetics or an accident or something as simple as that and utterly uncontrollable for the person. If you like this podcast, please check out our other episodes. They're really good. And thanks for listening.